It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. We have settled into a pace. I feel like I'm in a groove now. I love this frenetic pace at the General Assembly. It's fun. It is fun. I was just saying to someone, so on Wednesday, there were a ton of different advocacy days, and we haven't seen that in a few years because of COVID. And the General Assembly was packed with people. Like the energy was so high, it made you excited too. Lots of lobby days yesterday. We had a client in town, Audubon, North Carolina, had a wonderful day, Mm -hmm. but they were not the only group in town yesterday. We even got to see the llama again. I think the llama actually has a lot of lobby days. (laughs) I think so. I don't know what's going on with the llama. Apparently, the Convention of States, which is this group that wants to do a rewrite of the Constitution, brings the llama. And uh, Is it a llama or is it an alpaca? What's the difference? <laughs> I don't know. I, was, I thought you were going to know. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. When I was growing up, I used to watch those commercials on TV for the alpaca farms. Uh-huh. Did you remember yeah, seeing yeah, those? Yeah. Like late at night, I watched Nick at Night a lot. Because I had a real addiction to I Love Lucy. <laughs> and they always had these ads for alpaca farms. I was obsessed. I wanted an alpaca so bad. My parents were like, you live in the middle of a town. <laughs> what are you going to do with an alpaca? I don't know. Show up at state legislatures and ask for a rewrite of the Constitution. I didn't know you were an I Love Lucy fan. I'm an I Love Lucy fan. Wow. Love Lucille Ball. Oh, just... What a wonderful, wonderful I liked Mary Tyler Moore, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I liked to watch that. I have the Mary Tyler Moore theme song as sung by Joan Jett and the Heartbreakers. I have it on my my playlist. (laughs) I thought you were about to say your iPod. (laughs) 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 Tell me more, old man. (laughs) You can turn the world on with your smile. You don't need to sing. I don't think you need to sing. (laughs) Okay, I was singing. You were singing with the Convention of States people yesterday. I'm proud to be an American, where at least (laughs) you know I'm free. I yeah. thought you were forgetting the words oh, there. Oh, no. You cannot forget the words to that song. If you work in politics, gosh, it seems like you hear that song all the time. But where do we even begin <laughs> back this to week? The general back, assembly. back to the General Assembly. Where do we begin this week? This week was a slower pace because the Senate just, you know, the last two weeks, they bang, 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 a bunch of bills, controversial bills, and those bills are all in the House now, and none of those bills have moved. So what is the main thing happening at the General Assembly right now? Budget. That's right. And we expect that they're pretty close on the budget. It could come out Monday, Tuesday. It could come out next week. All of the budget writing seems to be done behind closed doors. That has helped make the pace a little quicker than past sessions where you have the subcommittee hearings. A little quicker, a lot quicker. (laughs) Sorry. You are right. We understand that everything needed to be in yesterday, Wednesday, the 8th. They came to conclusions on some big ticket things between subcommittees. And so now they're just wrapping up other things, debating, you know, House and Senate priorities moving into the weekend. The big question is... What is the reaction of Governor Roy Cooper? What is the reaction of some of those Democrats that voted for the budget in the last long session? Are they going to be able to keep that 
bipartisan coalition together? Are we looking at a veto showdown? What's I mean, a lot of questions out there. We've talked to a few Democrats who are willing to vote for the budget. A lot of them are just waiting to see what comes out of the the corner offices. So after those couple of weeks where there were these high priority bills for the Senate, we went back down to just kind of your regular bills that were either had crossed over last session, maybe they got caught up in budget negotiations. And then there have been a lot of local bills this year, which are, of course, bills that the governor cannot veto. You know, a good example of the governor not being able to veto a local bill is that Senator Berger's office has run a bill dealing with Rockingham Community College and who gets the appointments to the Board of Trustees. We actually heard that bill yesterday in the House. It is a local bill. It is taking some authority away from the governor, and I'm sure he does not like it, but... Can't do anything about it. Back when they were giving the authority to the governor, I think it was 1995 or 96 when they gave authority to the governor to veto. Our governor did not have veto authority up until 1995. A senator, Roy Cooper, was part of drafting that legislation, and he carved out local bills from being vetoed by a governor. I think he was on Tim Boyum's podcast last year where he said that was one of his regrets. He did not think about him being governor one day, I guess, but uh, it has certainly come back to, to Burnham. We see a lot of gut and replace bills. That's been interesting to see. What, what, what is gut and replace? The way that I would explain this to folks is first, since we're in the short session, A bill had to have been filed last year and made crossover, which means it either crossed from it passed the House or it passed the Senate and it's in the opposite chamber for it to be viable for this session. There are plenty of workarounds to that, but that's the way that is. And this year, if you wanted to file a bill, it had to have an appropriation or be a local bill. Let's say a bill passed last year and it is on the Senate side past the house it's on the senate side but it was something that was included in the budget so that language is no longer needed because it was it already passed in a different form so what folks do is they kind of hold what those bills are senator Berger's office speaker moore's office the rules chairs they know what those bills are they have a list of them so those are kind of bills that are what we call vehicles for other language. And so if you have language you need into something, but it wasn't filed in a bill or didn't meet the guidelines, you can take one of those blank bills where they take out the language and put new language in it. You know, I learned a lesson this week about uh, gut and replace bills. In fact, I was talking to Representative Chris Humphrey yesterday. He learned a lesson too. We were talking about how you learn something new every day. Actually, Joey Stansberry as well over in Senator Johnson's office. We're working with the Senate. Uh, to try to get a bill passed this year, and we needed to gut and replace. So we found a bill, and it was the House had sent it over in the long session. It was a Representative Chris Humphrey bill. And I said, hey, he said, yeah, take my bill. You can use that. Gut, replace it, put your language in. And then we found out that you can't gut and replace a local bill for a public bill. So... 
the corner off Senator Berger's staff caught that and they said, Hey, you guys got to find another bill. We found another bill, but you learn something new every day. I did not know that. So we got some news this week from Speaker Tim Moore. He told Travis Fain over at WREL that we are coming back in December for a special session, a lame duck session because it's after the November election. And we are going to draw, redraw congressional maps. I don't think that's super shocking to folks who saw this last redistricting session play out. I think everyone knew in the back of their minds, and there was a lot of talk once the maps came out, well, they'll just come back and redraw. Those are only the congressional maps for this election. So we heard that a lot. So I don't think it's that surprising. The idea is that the legislature draws districts every 10 years. What the Republicans are saying about these congressional maps is they didn't draw them. The courts drew them. So they are going to assert their right to draw these districts. I imagine, could be wrong, but I imagine that Democrats not only object to it, but will file some sort of lawsuit to try to stop this redraw. Another layer to this is that we will have elected a new Supreme Court. I think there are two seats that could decide whether we are a Republican-leaning court or a Democratic-leaning court. Right now, the Democrats have a one-seat advantage. So look for this to go to court and look for a lot of politics to play out. So last week, we talked about Representative Greer Martin retiring from the House to go work at the Pentagon. And this week, we got to sit down with him. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Representative Greer Martin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kyle and Brian. It's good to be here up front. I got to say, I'm just coming off of a non-COVID illness. That's why my voice sounds so sultry and husky and sexy right now. Yeah, great podcast voice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about your district. Where is your district? Why do you think your district's special? Right. Um, as with any uh, urban district, um, the answer to where my district is, where the boundaries are, depends on what day it is, because this is North Carolina, and we do redistricting. We redraw our districts uh, at the drop of a hat every few months, it seems like, and the urban districts in particular change significantly. Roughly, it's a, a central Raleigh district running uh, roughly around the Five Points intersection up north. Right now, it's a pretty narrow sliver, almost like a, a vertical sausage uh, mm -hmm. running up uh, almost to 540. Hmm. Very quickly, we got a sausage reference. <laughs> oh, oh, no. no. <laughs> and, and, and why do you think your district is special? Yeah, it's, it's um, special because um, it is uh, a district in the capital city. So it's got a lot of folks that um, are involved in government or are interested in government and who pay a lot of attention to government and, so, um, and who, who work in government. So uh, I hear from those folks a lot, probably more than a lot of my colleagues, and I get very well-informed, pointed questions from them. 
uh, not only that, but a lot of them work in the legislative building. So mm-hmm. I have to be on my best behavior in the legislative <laughs> building or else my constituents would, would see me misbehaving. Do you feel like over the time that you've served, your the folks that live in your district have changed? Or is it a lot of folks that have their families have lived there for a long period of time? Because Raleigh has changed a lot. And you have served for a while. So have you seen that change? Yeah. Um, the district, the southern part of the district is more around the Five Points area. That doesn't change as much. It's an older, it's some of the very early suburbs of Raleigh yeah. that are there. Um, and so there's less transition there. But then as you move up into the northern part of the district, you get the area that decades and decades ago uh, was the first wave of the RTP workers, the IBM workers. And they've been there for decades now, but it's continued to sort of have that tradition as being a place where the folks that come work in many of the high-tech industries in the area live. And so there's a lot of, uh, a good amount of turnover there, a lot of new folks coming in. And so uh, again, going back to why the district is special, for me it's that combination of the tradition of old Raleigh with the influx of fresh blood that you really need to stay vital. So keeping the traditions of old Raleigh with uh, a focus on the future. So you were first elected in 2004, started serving in 2005. Correct me if I'm wrong, that was a pretty big freshman class you came in with that year, right? Yeah, it was. There were a whole lot of us, and we represented a shift, um, putting Democrats back in the majority in the House. The term right before me was the infamous co-speakership. That's right. And so we came in. um, Every one of us Democratic freshmen, of course, thought that we were the one that put Democrats over the top (laughs) and back in the majority. Of course, it was a team effort. And you served until... Was it 2012? Can you take us through yeah. there, You did take a, a brief period off. That's right. Um, in 2010, after 2010, um, we uh, redrew the districts. Yeah. And I was drawn in with then State Representative Deborah Ross, one of my best friends, yeah. a great friend and mentor to me, one of my all-time favorite people ever to serve with. And Deborah and I went through a several-month process of um, seeing if the districts were going to change, um, having conversations, and in the end, it made sense for me not to run. Um, so I didn't run in 2012. Deborah did, and of course, was was elected. And then about six months after that, she left the General Assembly to go work at Triangle Transit as their general counsel to help um, move the, our transportation future forward. Um, and so when she left, I put my hat back in the ring and was a nominated by the local Democratic Party and came back. So I had a, a six-month break that was uh, the best, happiest six months of my life in, in the last two decades. So let's go back to you growing up. Tell us about where you're from, who are you, and how was it as a child? Yeah, so now that I don't have to run for re-election uh, in Raleigh anymore, I was actually born and raised in Charlotte. Whoa! <laughs> Scandal! Yeah, that's right. And, um, now, this is new news. That's right. That's right. We had to keep that hush-hush. If you go back and look at uh, my campaign materials when I first ran, uh, I'm listed as a North Carolina native. Okay. Um, but uh, Charlotte, you know, wonderful city. Um, I, I'm partial to Raleigh. It's its home. Um, uh, went to the public schools there, graduated from West Charlotte High School, um, which uh, played a, a significant role in the desegregation of the Charlotte-Mecklenburg public yeah. schools, which uh, y'all may know, Charlotte-Mecklenburg, Swan versus Charlotte-Mecklenburg Board yeah. of Education mm-hmm. was the test case in the United States Supreme Court for busing as a means to achieve desegregation. And I came along just after the initial wave of 
white students that were bused to African, historically African-American schools. But West Charlotte still had that feel of, it had strong histories of an African-American school, but it still had that feel of being a collaborative effort of the community, of black, white, different parts of the city, that we all made compromises to come together to move, to move the city forward. Um, and that collaborative effort um, and what it could achieve really stuck with me. Mm. Very, very important. Um, At the time, did you understand what was happening, that you were being, you were a part of history? Yeah, yeah. And again, we weren't that first wave right. of, of, you know, the white students who set foot in a black school or, yeah. or a few decades before, actually, the first black students to really desegregate um, the, the schools. Or Harding High was the, uh, where Dorothy Count Scoggins, uh, the first step set foot but we knew that this was not normal that it was um a special thing we, mm-hmm. we were aware of um how unique it was we knew that busing had failed in boston and detroit mm-hmm. and so many other cities and that it was not perfect but it was succeeding in charlotte which is why it's been uh, such a tragedy to have to see uh that consensus that compromise uh really fall apart in charlotte um, and, and to see things, uh, in many cases, re- resegregate. But it, it, it still leaves me with hope with what we can accomplish because what they were facing in, in Charlotte um, immediately after the Swan decision um, is far greater than anything we're facing now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know we can get where we need to be. So I graduated from West Charlotte in 87 and went far, far away for college, just up I-77 to Davidson oh, College, yeah. just about 30 minutes away. Um, finished there in 91 and uh, had done ROTC there and so went and did uh, Army stuff out at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Tried to learn how to shoot cannons, didn't learn mm-hmm. so well. Um, and then uh, went into the reserves after that and went off to Carolina for law school. Um, and then went back to Charlotte, practiced law for a few years. Um, then, then you discovered Raleigh. <laughs> no, it's true. Um, in 2001, my wife and I moved to Raleigh. Um, and then a uh, few months after we moved to Raleigh, 9-11 happened. Um, volunteered for active duty and got orders to go to Fort Bragg. Um, wife, wife found out that we were pregnant and then uh, got orders to go to Afghanistan. Daughter was born six days before I left. And... Um, uh, which made for some interesting conversations there. In Afghanistan, that, I think that's where I first started thinking that um, started the process that led me to, to run for office. I think um, Sarah is our only daughter. Uh, and so I went from really, I wouldn't say not having a care in the world, but you know, I, I got up, tied my own shoelaces and did what my wife told me to do. And, and things worked out fine. I didn't have responsibility for anything else. But when you have a child, you feel that responsibility that, uh, to um, not just to ensure that she's fed and clothed and sheltered, but that you're going to raise her not just in your house but in the world, uh, and that you, you have an obligation to make that world, that country, that state a better place. And then six days after she was born, and assuming that obligation, landing in Afghanistan, a, a country where uh, I wouldn't have felt good raising a daughter with so many problems and, and realizing that when I got back to America that I had a duty uh, to ensure that America never got to the state that Afghanistan was in. 
um, and to continue to work to make it better uh, out of an obligation to my daughter and then by extension everyone else's kids too. So um, was still on active duty when I made the decision to run, had to get a general officer to sign a waiver to let me file for office. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, came off active duty, almost literally took my uniform off one day, got up the next day, started knocking on doors to campaign. Let's go back again to high school, college. What drove you to see the military as a part of your path? So I made the decision to start RTC when I was probably 18 or 19 years old. Okay. And you know, there's plenty of 18 or 19 year olds there that are level-headed, yeah. clear thinkers and focused okay. on okay. what they want. I wasn't at that stage then. But I, as I look back on it, I think that somewhere in that idiot brain of mine at the time was a sense that of two things. One, some underlying sense that I, I needed the military uh, to get disciplined, to get motivated, to move me forward. And then also somewhere I do think there was some underlying sense of duty even then yeah. that it was uh, my obligation as a citizen. And as a citizen who had, you know, had benefited from uh, everything that's wonderful about America, that I had an obligation to protect her. I don't know that I would have articulated either of those concepts at age 18 or 19. Um, but looking back on it, um, I think those are the two things that drove me to do it. You come from... Uh, a family that has been involved in mm. politics. I'm a great admirer of your father, D.G. Martin. Uh, I'm also a fan of Book Watch on PBS. <laughs> uh, can you talk a little bit about your father and his influence on your life and your political life as yeah, well? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so my father had served in the military too, just, yeah. for, just for a few years in between college and law school. So I think um, I was aware that that was something that people did mm-hmm. or that was an option. Um, and, and I'm a big fan of him too, and, and, and book watch. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I remember at an early age, one memory, this was, I don't know, I must've been fifth or sixth grade. He and I were doing something in our den and he got a phone call and it was a, uh, a Charlotte resident. I assume it was someone involved in the local democratic party, uh, urging him to run for city council, mm. um, which he ended up not doing. But I remember thinking at the time, wow, that's an interesting concept that someone calls you up and asks you to run for office. And and to be clear, no one called me up and asked me to run for state house. It was was me calling people saying, hey, I'd like to do this. Can can you help me? Um, But but I guess I was that uh, seeing his involvement in politics gave me an awareness. I I guess I always understood that politics was an option that was open to Mm -hmm. me. And later, I became aware that not everyone, in fact, probably most folks, don't have that sense. And one of the things we need to get to in America where every citizen does feel like they uh, have, that politics is open to them to get involved in as a candidate or, or otherwise, I think right now most folks feel that, that's, that they're shut off from it. And in many cases, unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, that's probably true. Um, but also remember Dad's strong involvement in the community so many other things. And also my mother's uh, strong involvement. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, she was deeply involved with Planned Parenthood, mm-hmm. uh, deeply involved with um, local uh, uh, shelters um, for, uh, not for runaways, but for disadvantaged folks. Um, mm-hmm. And that our home was a center for meetings for those groups. So there were people in our house that were, that cared about the community that I think felt an obligation to make it a better community. Um, and they were, uh, and so I guess all that sunk in and um, made me realize both uh, 
that service was open to me, but it also uh, is a duty mm-hmm. of mine too. So you've been at the General Assembly for a long time in the majority and the minority, and you've worked on a lot of different legislation. What are one or two things that you are proud of that you have accomplished at the General Assembly? Yeah, so the, one of them uh, is that um, it's not the most exciting one or sexy one at all, but it's the transportation budget. Mm-hmm. In my third term, I chaired the House uh, Transportation Appropriations Committee. So I, want, I was one of just really one of two people in the House that wrote the transportation budget. Um, and my colleague in there was Nelson Cole. I don't know if you remember yeah, Nelson. Rockingham County. W- wonderful guy. You know, Nelson, um, by virtue of his district and his politics, had, even though we're both Democrats, he had a different sense on what North Carolina's transportation future looked like. I mean, not completely dissimilar. But I, I wanted one that was that shifted more towards more transportation options. And he was, this is definitely simplifying it, was a roads guy. Now, Nelson was a great mentor, and he taught me so much about transportation. He also sold cars for a living. Yeah, that's right, he did. <laughs> Probably <laughs> skewed his that's views right. a little. That's right. um, but I was uh, able to uh, steer the budget uh, a little bit away from, a little bit towards my vision for the future. Mm. Not a huge paradigm shift, but a notable shift. And that was through working with Nelson. Um, that was through working with the Senate and working with Republicans. And our budget passed um, the, the House Transportation Appropriations Committee unanimously mm-hmm. with Democratic and Republican support. And I'm very proud of that because it was, it was not a super controversial budget, but it's one that did right. make some shifts. And I did that. Uh, through, I was able to get that vote through a variety of ways. One uh, inclusiveness, um, ensure, listening to any Republican that came to me with an idea or, or Democrat, ensuring that uh, they had adequate time after seeing the very thick transportation budget, that they had time to read it, to have all their questions answered, um, to get whatever data they needed, have full time with staff, um, and only then bring the budget up for mm-hmm. a vote. And I worked with House leadership to ensure that we got that time. So I think they felt that they'd been heard. Uh, They didn't feel uh, that they'd had anything forced upon them, and they felt that the process had been respected. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm I'm real proud of that. You know, there's the budget. Again, it's boring. It's a transportation budget. Mm -hmm. Um, But then beyond that, um, I am proud of my work on ethics reforms, Mm -hmm. uh, proud of my work to... uh, protect our environment, to ensure that the water we drink is safe and the air we breathe is safe. Um, and then the work I've done on uh, military and veterans issues. Mm-hmm. It was a niche that when I got to the General Assembly was was uh, unf- unfilled. Um, no one was really working on them. I was the first um, uh, Afghanistan or Iraq veteran elected to the General Assembly. Mm-hmm. And so these are issues that uh, were, were I'd exp- issues that I'd experienced or seen in, in the very near past. And also, um, as a freshman, as I'm looking to find issues to work on, where I can make a difference since no one else was working on them, I was able to fill that void and really generate a lot of business and do a lot of good. Let's talk about the way you work and the way you legislate. You're a progressive. You stand up and you debate issues or you work with other legislators. You find a way to find common ground across the aisle. And you tend to do this uh, by using your military service. I noticed a 
you would connect with Representative Michael Speciali, who you do not share ideological <laughs> uh, beliefs with. Uh, you reach out to George Cleveland. All of these gentlemen are veterans. And I noticed that when you do that, you take those opportunities to, to mention it and to remind them. And then it kind of lowers the temperature. And then you go in on the next debate. The shared experiences from military service are important. Military service is by far not the only way to get a set of shared experiences that can bring people together in spite of their differences. But it's a great one because you've crawled through the mud, Mm -hmm. uh, the same mud. Um, You know, you've been to some of the same unpleasant places in the world or at installations in America, been yelled at uh, by sergeants, (laughs) mean, nasty sergeants. And so um, you've got that set of shared experiences to build a basis of trust. Mm-hmm. One thing though, that the military brings that uh, adds on to that, though, is that um, I think you know, knowing that George Cleveland or Mike Speciality stepped up to serve their country, mm-hmm. um, that they uh, acted to, in the service of something greater than them, gives me some trust mm-hmm. uh, that they will be able to do the same thing in the legislature. That's not to say that military veterans are always acting in the interest of something greater, by no means. We're not sure. immune to self-interest at all. Mm-hmm. But I at least, uh, with my fellow veterans, give them the benefit of the doubt, and more often than not, they live up to it. And, and I hope that they give me the same benefit of the doubt. But we, we just understand each other. I don't, you remember Rick Killian from yes, Charlotte? Yes, I do. <laughs> you know, Rick, very conservative Republican. But he and I, at the time, were the only serving Soldiers. That's right. He was in the Army Reserve, as, as was I. So I, I just bragged on my success getting a transportation budget passed. Right after that session is when the Republicans took the majority. And Rick took over my job. He deposed me as okay. the chair okay. of the Transportation Appropriations Committee. And I remember the day that, that they rolled out the transportation budget. And when he got to the part where they were reading... Uh, the part that repealed some of the stuff I was proud of implementing, he gave me a little wink. And he knew he could do that because mm-hmm. we were good friends. Um, you know, Rick and I always knew that we could work together on something because mm-hmm. you know, he'd he been to the same installations I'd been, undergone exactly the same training I'd done. We just understood each other. Mm-hmm. And it was never personal when he voted against my bills or I voted against, against his. Really, some of the folks I felt closest to and trusted most are some Republicans whose policies I disagree with completely, but who were, who were veterans. Um, just because I, I knew why they were doing what they were doing. It was not personal. It was not addictive. It was just because they had a sincere belief that the policy for which they were advocating was what was best. Mm-hmm. But you asked how I, sort of, how I bring this set of shared experiences to sort of bring down the temperature. The biggest difference that George Cleveland and I have, and Mike Speciali and I have, is not the fact that they're Democrats and I'm they're Republicans and I'm a Democrat, it's that they're Marines and I'm a soldier. Okay. And so that gives me a license to tell all the Marine jokes that I, <laughs> that I want to tell. And, and I do. Um, and there's a wonderful inter-service uh, rivalry that mm-hmm. uh, we love to make jokes, mm-hmm. mostly on the Air Force, but, uh, <laughs> but everybody else. So, but it's, it's, it's important to find those set, sets of shared experiences. Um, I was listening to NPR the other day and they quoted the latest statistic on the percentage of veterans in Congress. And it was down to, I don't know, one in six, one in seven, the lowest it's been in forever. And the hope is that I'll take an uptick as this generation of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans 
gets of an age in a position in life where they can really start running. Mm-hmm. And my hope is that we'll see that uh, some increased collegiality, or more important than collegiality, the ability just to work together and trust each other and reduce the, the tension that that may promote. But we need to look um, for other ways that we, as a society, in a, a society that's wonderfully diverse now, how can we find ways to still create those sets of shared experiences yeah. that can uh, provide that foundation of trust that we can then go not let the political differences that are inevitably going to divide us prevent us from working together where we need to. Yeah. So you resigned your seat <laughs> and you're getting, I would say, an upgrade in job title. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about what you're going to do next. So it, it may sound like an upgrade job title the way the pentagon works is the longer your job title is the less important you are (laughs) so the secretary of defense secretary of defense three words my title is senior advisor to the assistant secretary of defense for manpower and reserve affairs very long title Hmm. meaning i'm a very unimportant person down the bottom of the food chain but it's a great opportunity to come in and work at a high level at the very i'll be working at the very top of the office uh, that'll be that determines a lot of personnel issues um, in the Department of Defense. Um, some of these issues I've worked on at the state level: quality of life for service members mm. and their families. Um, it will be a big part of this job, so I'm excited to, to sort of switch perspectives on it. And work on it at the federal level. Um, I served two terms on a federal advisory board, um, the Reserve Forces Policy Board, that dealt with a lot of these issues also. So, um, and I enjoyed that a lot. It was a lovely break from the General Assembly. Um, it, it's rare that, it's a really strange thing that I would look forward to going to D.C. for those board <laughs> meetings to get away from politics. But <laughs> that's how it played out. So it's a great set of issues. One that's uh, really important as we look on how we're going to recruit and retain the next generation of service members and retain their families. Just as important. You're one of the veteran members uh, I mean that in all ways right. at, the, at the General Assembly. You're one of the Democrats' lead debaters on bills. Was this a hard decision for you to come to, to uh, leave the General Assembly and go into this new role? I think anytime you make a life change um, as significant as this, that involves a geographic, at least during the week, a geographic shift, um, but a shift a- away from a job that I've been at for, for 17 years now, is not going to be completely easy decision. That said, this opportunity in D.C. came at a time where I was definitely ready to move on. Um, I think even in the most collegial environment, uh, a legislative body is by design a a confrontational place. Mm. Uh, Yeah, we were talking about cars earlier. I'm a car guy too, just like Nelson Cole was. (laughs) You know, um, the reason you, the way brakes work on your car to keep you from wrecking your car and trashing your car is by generating friction. Mm. And that, that's great. It keeps the car from crashing. But if you're the brake pad, you get burnt up from the friction. Well, I'm, I'm kind of burn up, burn out now. And it, it's, yeah, it's time to go. Okay. Um, we've got a great uh, set of younger Democratic and Republican legislators who are more than ready to take over. And it's time for me just to get the heck out of their way and let them them take over do you think you will maybe take a break and come back into electoral politics at some level higher level no no definitely not um in 2008 uh, i was recruited to run for the u.s senate Mm -hmm. and gave it a a couple months three months of due diligence um, gave it a very serious look and made 
other than man, my wife I made the smartest decision of my life to, to not run. Okay. My daughter was, was young. Um, uh, and I, I was still making up for missing so much of her initial six or seven months while I was in Afghanistan. And I had noticed, I, I talked to some U.S. senators about how they were making it work um, and couldn't find a way to make it work for me. Mm-hmm. And so I thank goodness didn't. And even better, we got Kay Hagan, who did a far better job than, than I could have done anyway. Um, so um, that bit of research due diligence really stood me well and never gave it another look after that and now I'm ready to be done with elected politics completely so absolutely will not be running for anything else again okay very 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 proud of my service in the state house that's a great place to make a difference and ready to ready to put it in the rearview mirror okay wow okay so before we started recording Y'all were talking about some of the old days and some of the ways that the general... <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to make it sound like you guys are so old. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. My, my voice is sounding like an old man's voice. So. Yeah, yeah, it was great times. <laughs> <laughs> way, way, way back in aught five and aught six. We, I will say this. When we first started, we did not have these telephones and this internet. Remember when they used to t- take amendments page by page? <laughs> Even the littlest amendment, okay, more, oh, yeah, it was the totally different. House will be for five minutes while amendments are, are passed out. We're wow. printing out the one-line amendment, yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, uh, Speaker Tillis, now Senator Tillis, um, really was instrumental in changing that. He yeah. he was, you know, an efficiency expert, I guess, with Deloitte, maybe, yeah. and brought that mentality to the House and really moved us into the well, into the 20th century. Um, and it's just in time for the 21st century. <laughs> but, but, you, but, you, but you, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, you remember a lot of, um, for a while, a lot of the old legislators still had their bill books. They'd yeah. have their LAs yeah. print up all the oh, bills yeah. for them. Wow. All right. Fast forward to 2022. <laughs> <laughs> so as things have changed, our politics are divided if you had a magic wand and you could fix one thing in our politics today, what would it be? Yeah, um, I think it goes back to uh, what we were talking about just a few minutes ago. That, that set of shared experiences, whatever it may be, that form can form a foundation to build trust. And back in the old days, um, before the, the ethics reforms, it used to be that lobbyists could take legislators out to dinner and pay for our meals, take us out to rounds of golf, that sort of thing. And we, we passed some very significant reforms that we needed to do that have definitely made, improved the ethical culture in the General Assembly and improved the quality of life for legislators and lobbyists also. Um, but that's had one negative um, sad effect, which is that we no longer had this subsidized way to bring legislators together over a meal, over a, mm. a beer, over a glass of wine. And that has been one thing that's contributed to the, the declining civility. Not the only thing, by any means, or even the main reason. But when you've sat there and broken bread and, and, and drunk a beer with someone and talked to them, asked them about their family, um, learning about what motivates them, uh, what makes them tick, that's the sort of thing that's a shared experience. So we need to find some way uh, to create that set of shared experiences. It would you know, um, it would not be the worst use of taxpayer dollars, um, you know, to, to, I don't know, pay for a softball team or something yeah. for us to go and just force us to play <laughs> softball. 
Yeah. Yeah, because you see how bad we are. You laugh at each other. <laughs> you know, the legislative basketball game is still a good way to do that that some members uh, participate in. But we, we need to find some ways uh, to do that. And, you know, the joke, the, the joke is trust falls and sing kumbaya. I'm not going to do that. But, you know, let's go to a, a go-kart track and race go-karts. Something like that and have it continuous so that it's renewing itself um, would make a, a very big difference, I think. I think you're right. Well, Representative Greer Martin, we appreciate everything you have done in service to our state, for our country, and your continued service to our country in your new role. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you all. It's a pleasure to be here. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. I remember Representative Martin's freshman year at the General Assembly. He was this young, dynamic legislator, downtown Raleigh. It has been really fun to see his career up until now. We wish him the very best in the Biden administration and his continued public service. Okay, ready? Yeah. Count me down. One, two, three. Tweet Tweet of of the week. week. This week's tweet of the week is from Zach Wallace, and he is at RZ Wallace. It's in response to a firefighter we know who talked about how he had bought a seersucker jacket. And so Zach tweeted, I've seen zero seersuckers since being in Asheville. Makes me miss the NCGA. I saw a lot of seersuckers this week. It was hot this week. I had never seen a seersucker suit until moving down here. And I, I guess I didn't realize, like, it's that much cooler. Do you yeah. really believe that that's true? It 100% is a much cooler suit. Like, Do you think that's because you bought yours off of Amazon? It's like <laughs> one-ply toilet paper you're wearing? I got rid of that uh, seersucker. I have another seersucker that's a little more fitting than the one that you didn't like, which was I did get off Amazon, and it was like... Ill-fitting. Ill-fitting. It's like I'm wearing a parachute. <laughs> but it is cooler. But, I mean, you know, once you start, once, at least for me, once I start sweating, I'm just hot. But it, it is a cooler suit. I was going to wear a seersucker suit this week. I opted for my tan suit, which oh, yeah, is a I like lighter. your tan you suit. You like the tan suit. But I will bring out the seersucker. We were actually in a meeting, uh, speaking of seersuckers, with uh, Senator Paul Newton yesterday and his staff member Andrew Stiffel he was wearing a seersucker jacket and he was telling me that he had been told that he was not looking stylish yesterday because it wasn't a full matching he was wearing khakis with a seersucker jacket and Andre Beliveau told him you're not being stylish I don't think there's any rules out there about what goes with what. It's just a seersucker. Andrew, you looked great yesterday. And we welcome you. And we welcome Matt Balance one day into wearing a full seersucker suit. So you had seen seersucker suits on TV, right? Like, you know, Colonel Sanders, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Matlock. 
Sure, I guess. Yeah. So do you like you don't like this ear sucker? I don't mind this ear sucker. It's not my favorite color suit. Yeah. You know, some people get wild with it, like the pink seersucker. Not a it can fan. it can be a lot. It just looks like we're at a carnival, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, who am I to say what people wear? You make fun of my outfits all the time, so <laughs> I again I don't really think there are rules about it. Just wear what you wanna wear. But you're supposed to suppose I'm putting quotes around this. You're supposed to wear a white belt with white buck shoes with your seersucker. We see all sorts of combinations, brown belt, brown shoes, black belt, black shoes. Where, where did that rule come from? You look at, I think it goes back to uh, the Kentucky Derby or something. Mm. And so, cause the seersucker, I think I don't, let's, let's fact check this, but I think the seersucker originated in Kentucky. And I think in Kentucky, you can wear seersuckers year round. Again, I'm not a believer in these fashion rules, but I'm just telling you what, I've learned. It's on the internet. You can look it up. I am. (laughs) Fact check. Mm -hmm. False. Okay. The Southern staple originated in 1907 when a New Orleans merchant began searching for a lighter weight suit that could withstand the summer heat, humidity, and sweat. The blue and white fabric was born named Seersucker from the Persian for milk and sugar to pay homage to its textured weave. Okay. So... Wrong again. <laughs> Be, I, I have heard this, that the Senate has Seersucker Thursday starting in June, and it appears that started in 1996. Hmm. But it was discontinued in 2012, but in 2014 it was revived. Hmm. Wow, we're just learning a lot. We often say, oh, we should mention that on the podcast, and then we forget about it. Mm-hmm. So I have a shared note that only I contribute to. But Brian has access to. And so when he mentions something to me, I'll write it down. And a few weeks back, he mentioned that he had this idea talking with another lobbyist. We can mention it was Stephen B. Webb. Okay. Anyway, he's over at the North Carolina Home Builders Association. (laughs) I'm setting you up. But not to be confused with Stephen B. Wiley. (laughs) Okay. So a few weeks ago, Brian was talking to another lobbyist about having lobby days. What was your idea? We combine them all. We choose one day out on the mall, Halifax Mall, behind the General Assembly, and every organization has a lobby day. The center is the growler where, you know, we can just drink beer that is provided by the great folks over at the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association, which is a sponsor of this podcast. We can have our tourism folks out there, the alpaca conventions of the states folks. You could have the uh, flexology people who were at the General Assembly. It's reflexology. Reflexology. (laughs) What is flexology? (laughs) The chiropractors. I mean, just one day, the port council's making a, you know, cooking a pig out there. And, you know, just everybody out on the mall, one big lobby day at the General Assembly. I think it would be so much fun. It reminds me, it gives the same energy as in college, like right before school starts and everybody goes out on the quad and does their little organization thing and you walk around and see what you want to join. It it seems like the same energy. It would be a beautiful day 
where you can both get a massage and drink a beer and pet an alpaca. I you th- can do all of that one day if you set your mind to it. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, just celebrate all of the interest groups that are out there. It would be an efficient way, a fun way. We could have, you know, tomato sandwich day out there, watermelon day. Yeah, you don't have to mention every day. All right. Well, that's my idea. Uh, we can convince our clients. We could have firefighters out there doing simulated burns. I mean, this would be... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this doesn't sound problematic at all. Beer, the alpaca, some burning. It would be great. Uh, yeah. We'll just throw our kickball game out there. Throw the <laughs> kickball game. I, I mean, I'm all for it. And I think it would be just a lot of fun. Sounds fun. All right, who's in? Let us know. We'll get our groups to get on the same page. Seafood Festival Day. <laughs> okay, you don't need to keep adding on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's a great idea, though. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I got to elevate it when you have one. Yeah. <laughs> Versus when you spread lies that are very specific, <laughs> like the Kentucky Derby starting zero sucker. <laughs> That's how you know someone's lying, is they get too specific with it. <laughs> We both, we, the thing is, is we get to report the news in the podcast and then apologize five minutes later for giving you bad information. (laughs) As always, thanks for taking the time to listen, subscribe, and share us with your friends, your colleagues. We really do appreciate it. And now that we're in session, we're seeing a lot of y'all at the building definitely come up to us and let us know if there's something you want us to talk about. We're happy to hear suggestions or if you want us to stop talking about certain things, (laughs) Brian's nose hairs or whatever that may be. We will talk to you next Friday if we don't talk to you sooner. But in the meantime, please remember to do politics better.